0: Log Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. And fuck the black police. That 13th amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind not to ever be free. Okay? Free the black panthers. FTBP. Stand for free the black panthers. F up the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles. But so we still here, then the bill here. Up coins, hell, bro. Shout. it's going will be televised. Black power. Be scared guys that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say for the system. Cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols. Shotguns, that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense. Make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters. That lost they freedom. Until they freedom. We screaming carpe die. This for the we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck okay. me mad Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, it's up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay? Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, it's up the Black Police, Fans have our movement for black leadership roles. But we still been here, in the bill here, upcoins pro. RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elder, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny Foolish stuff, don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump gonna get inaugurated. Damn Unify a die. NBPP.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party
1: We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prison. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're
0: not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indentured servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th
1: Amendment forced our people to be subject to never had any say it that. We need our own nation.
2: Black is back.
0: Black is back. Black is back.
2: Black is back. Black is back. Black is back. Black is back. Black
0: is back. Black is back. The rallying call is Black is Back, and all of those people who wanted
3: to be mobilized and do that. document that I will be passing out, it is called the
4: Times, the document that I put together for Incobra around HR 40. It's a primer on, on the new HR 40. It was inspired by the work that uh, I've been doing within COBRA, the work that I've been doing with the National African American Reparations Commission, and the work that I've been doing with the Black is Black Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations as a reparations working group. Many people um, think that because Congressman John Conyers, who's been the champion of reparations, the only uh, legislator on the federal side of this issue, in the last 28 years to put forth any type of legislation for redress for the crimes committed against our ancestors. Uh, In the last 28 years, H.R. 40 has been the only legislation proposed. Uh, We had the opportunity in COBRA, the National African American Reparations Commission, had the opportunity to speak with Conyers Conyers, uh, around the uh, fact that we felt that the old H.R. 40, as it was written, was obsolete. There was so many things that had happened. Since 1987, when he introduced this legislation, up until 2017 or 2014, when we began the conversation around revising HR 40, uh, we stated that uh, we didn't no longer need it to study whether or not there was continued injury, which HR 40 was designed to do, to study whether or not there was harms to present-day Africans from the crimes committed against our ancestors via enslavement, via the Jim Crow segregation, etc. Well, that had already been settled, especially in 2001 at the World Conference Against Racism. The international community declared that those injuries still remain today. Okay, so we're up. So anyway, we are able to get Congressman Conyers to uh, uh, accept our revised H.R. 40, which is a remedy bill, no longer a steady bill. And so we put this primer together to, to inform the people nationally about what is going on around that particular legislation, that effort. Uh, around reparations. So my presentation or my my uh, input to the uh, Black is Back Electoral Candidate School is the, the use of ballot measures uh, for self-determination, for our struggle for self-determination. What I added this year, because I gave this presentation last year, what I added this year was the use of political action committees as well as ballot measures. Um, I, took the liberty like Glenn Ford to just do a little bit different <laughs> than what I was asked to do. <laughs> I think we... <laughs> Next slide. So using ballot measures, uh, this is like uh, just the outline of what I was talk about. The question of legitimacy, ballot measures, referendums, and initiatives, starting an initiative for a popular referendum, the process. Uh, Some of the questions that we can utilize in a self-determination platform, uh, some of the questions we can put on the ballot uh, that pushes forth our self-determination platform, uh, what is a political action committee and what are the keys to effective strategy uh, in ballot initiatives and political action committees, and then a few resources. I think this slide presentation will be given out, so you'll have this. If not, you can uh, contact the... Black is Back Coalition, and they probably can send it to you uh, via electronic form. So the question of legitimacy, we, we begin this whole conversation around ballot measures uh, with the question of what is uh, legitimate representation. Uh, and we define, or well Webster defines legitimate as being exactly, exactly what it was purposed for, not spurious or false, in other words, genuine something that's genuine. Like a hammer, we know that a hammer's purpose is to drive in a nail. If it doesn't drive in a nail, then it's not a genuine tool. It can be a mallet that's rubber, it's shaped like a hammer, but if it doesn't drive in a nail, it's not legitimate. Or it can be a gavel uh, where a judge uses. It's shaped like a hammer, but if it doesn't drive in a nail, it's not a legitimate hammer. And so when it comes to our representation in a democracy, The purpose, the genuine legitimate purpose of a representative in a democracy or in a republic, in a democracy, it is the eligible voters exercise their their political will, they govern through the representatives they elect. So it is the job of a legitimate representative to exercise the will of the people, to govern, the people are governing through their representatives. And in a republic, power is held, by the people who elect officers and representatives uh, responsible to them. So in a legitimate republic, which America is a republic, power is held by the people. But when we look at those people who are representing us, they do not govern according to our will, nor are they exercising our power. So we have an illegitimate relationship. They have an illegitimate relationship with the people and in this country uh one of the most famous uh uh notions around illegitimate representation was the so-called uh uh the tea party uh, not the tea party but the uh the boston tea whatever it is, Tea yeah boston tea, party. boston tea party yeah where they was they was uh elected to revolt against the the uh, british government saying that they had uh, they were being taxed without representation so they felt that the Lords back in England were not legitimately representing them. And so uh, that was the first question about uh, illegitimate representation. And what we call what we're defining as legitimate African representation is direct, complete, unwavering and honest rep- representation of our people's interests being totally responsible to them, utilizing the African principle of the greatest good for the greatest number of African people. So when we look at the whole notion of legitimate representation, that's what we're talking about. So, so uh, we, we've been talking a lot about colonialism and neocolonialism, I, and I know this is a, really a politically astute crowd, but there might be a few people who are not aware of exactly what colonialism is or neocolonialism is. Well, colonialism began as a social construct with Christopher Columbus. One of his names was Cristobal Cologne and that's the root word for colonialism. So you have a colony, Cristobal Cologne set up a colony, this whole, this whole international, at that time, new structure of social domination, social hegemony. And what he did, he took. He, they went into a particular area, a foreign area, and they rearranged all of the economic factors, all of the political factors, all of the social institutions that was there in a way that benefited the foreign entity back someplace else. So in Africa, even in America, the economic forces is land, labor, ingenuity, right? So they took the land of the indigenous or the African people and began to structure that for their benefit. And the labor in Africa, the labor was divided in a whole lot of different ways. So, you know, they had education, they had um mining, they had craftsmanship, they had all these different ways in which the labor in Africa was was organized for the purpose of African people. When the when the colonizer came, they rearranged all of the labor issues for the purpose of benefiting the foreign government. So you had kings and princes that were enslaved or that were put into servitude. You had uh, griots, you had miners, you had artisans, you had skilled craftsmen, now that were engaged in slavery or engaged in some type of other economic exploitative practices for the purpose of the European foreign power. And so that was colonialism. And so we can say today that colonialism still exists, because the labor in our community is not structured to benefit African people. As someone stated yesterday, even uh, I think the chairman was stated, that in the Bahamas, they're educated to serve. Yeah. They're not educated for the purpose of promoting the self-determination aspirations of the people. And so we can say we still live in a colonialized uh, uh, reality today because our institutions, our, ed- our school systems, our hospital- we, we lack hospitals. But the institutions that are supposed to serve the people are not organized for our benefit, but they're organized for the enslaver, for, for the colonizer. When, 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 when they say that by the third grade reading scores, they can determine how many prisons they're going to build, that says that the institutions of the educational institutions are in our community are purposely designed to benefit the colonizer. So it's the same situation. We still live under a form of domestic colonialism in this country. And we have political representatives who are not addressing the governing aspects of our community from this perspective. So they're illegitimate. As a whole class, they're illegitimate. So then we have neocolonialism. Neocolonialism is simply removing direct rule from of the uh, uh, enslaver or the colonizer and putting a black face in that particular position. But the structures, the underlying structures, the political structures, the economic structures, the institutional structures still remain in the hands of the exploiter. And we have so our current reality in America, political reality in America, is is still both colonial domination and neocolonial hegemony. Next slide. So this black leadership or non-black leadership is an illegitimate representation. And why can we, how can we say they're illegitimate? One is they, don't, they do not address the whole notion of colonialism or, or, or imperialism or neocolonialism because they are the neocolonial subjects. They are the neocolonial uh, players in the system. So they're not even addressing the true political state of our community. Many of them lack the competence. And competence competence is skill and knowledge. A combination of skill and knowledge is what gives you competence. So they lack the competence to legislate like a Charles and Inez Baron. They, they don't know how to bring in the resources in our community to change the situations of this hegemony. Uh, uh, as, as they, they, they stated, uh, Charles and Inez stated that they changed the whole governing structure in East New York. Not just the councilman, but all these other underlying Governing uh, uh, processes within that community, they changed it all around in favor of the people and not in favor of the system. So they lack the skills, this, this so-called leadership, and I, I was proposed that we no longer call the people who are supposed to represent us as leaders. We call them representatives. that's what they are. And right now they're in an illegitimate form of representation. So we no longer call them political political leaders, because the leaders are supposed to take the vision of the people and then put some type of program around realizing the people's vision. And they have no connection to the people. None. So we cannot call them political leaders. We can at best call them representatives that have a relationship to white power and not a relationship to African power. Another way that they're illegitimate is that this whole notion of colorblind, the brother talked about these code words uh, yesterday, this notion of colorblind, you can, uh, the Constitution is colorblind. You can't use race as a factor when crafting legislation. This is what they say, right? And any person who says, I want to craft something for, for, for black people, they immediately say, no, you can't do that because that's race-based, and you can't do it. And so they cripple our leaderships in a way that they may, some of them may want to do something on behalf of African people, but again, they lack the knowledge, and they're crippled by some of these uh, restrictions that this particular government places in their way. So they use words like uh, other or minority or people of color or black and brown uh, in ways to try to get things done, and uh, there's all type of science that says when you craft neutral legislation to handle the situation, the neutral legislation is going to benefit those less in need more than those who are less who are in, in need, so the gap gets wider yeah. with neutral legislation. Am I right, uh, Congressman, uh, Assemblyman? Absolutely. And so we can, we have to say that neutral legislation is anti-African yes. in its in its origin. It's anti-African. We need targeted, specific, relevant right. legislation to our particular people, yes. and that's what we have to uh, have. Uh, uh, courageous. Uh, uh, representatives that we put in place who can craft that type of legislation. Right. Also, are, they're illegitimate because they're dictated to by the Democratic Party. Right. It is, we live under a Democratic dictatorship, plain and simple. Yeah. Whatever the Democratic Party say, that's what's done. Yeah. In Chicago, we see this dictatorship glaringly clear like no other place in America. And I'll talk about that. I'm going to bring it up a little bit now. There is a community called Inglewood. I grew up in Inglewood. At one time, Inglewood was, you know, a solid, strong, vibrant, working-class black community. You see black men with their, when I was growing up, you see black men with their brown paper bags every morning getting on the bus, every evening getting off the bus. I would wait for my father because we live right at a bus stop, so I would wait every day for my father to get off with his brown paper bag There were 93,000 residents in Inglewood when I was living there as a young man. There's 33,000 today. The rest is vacant lots. Let me listen to what you see here, right? This is Chicago. There are five aldermen, councilmen, in New York who have a piece of Inglewood. These five Negroes and negresses could not say five high schools because the mayor wanted to close five high schools in this community. Five. And the community came out, and then the community spoke. We cannot let this happen because we know that there's a lot of gang issues in Chicago. So if you send these kids over there, they got to pass five or six gang territories before they get to school. So, so if you close these schools, what you automatically send, all these children are going to drop out. Plain and simple. Community came out and said, okay, we can't close all these schools uh, until we build a school. We're going to close one, and we're going to uh, close them in, in over periods and intervals. The next two weeks after the system made the statement, the school board voted to close them all. You have five aldermen in one area, and they can't legislate on behalf of the people in regards to the school system which is going to cripple this community even more. So, in fact, what we have is the mayor said this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to do, and hell, what do people say? That's dictatorship. And because we're married to the Democratic Party, we are absolutely being dictated dictated to on on a regular basis, even on the federal level. When we were uh, pushing H.R. 40, uh, at the time Barack Obama was elected, Barack Obama uh, was a Democrat, the Democrats had control of the House. The Democrats had the control of the Senate. And uh, Congressman Conyers says, we're going to push this legislation now. I'm the chair of the Judicial Committee. We're going to push this legislation. I'm ready. He called in Cobra up to, up to uh, Detroit, to his home state, and we laid out a, a, a platform and a, and a strategy. Three months later, we couldn't get, a, get him on the phone. Because Nancy Pelosi, who's head of the Democrat, who was the Speaker of the House at that time, says, no, don't bring anything like this. You're not going to bring it. We're just going to push this health care bill, and we don't want to hear nothing from the Congressional Black Caucus. Nothing. None of them. Maxine Waters says the the Barack Obama presidency neutered the Black Caucus. That's Democratic dictatorship. So when we talk about... Being technical or nominal Democrats, we really mean technical or nominal Democrats. Yeah. Not know, you know, if you utilize it, be, be clear that this is simply a strategy yeah. to get in office or get on the le- on the on the ballot. Yeah. But you have no allegiance to this party no. at all.
0: Right.
4: The final reason we call these people uh, illegitimate because they do not desire power. They're not running on the platform of building power for the people. They run on a whole platform of influence, and I'm going to say and it's a delusional platform yeah. that we can influence these people. It is straight-up delusional if you understand power. Next next slide. Yeah. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about power to show that this whole particular strategy of these current elected officials is delusional and ain't going to never work. <laughs> There's uh, two types of power, according to Dr. Amos Wilson. Charles Barron uses this, <laughs> and Inez Barron uses this, blueprint, blueprint for Black Power. He says there's two types of power. There's a power to do, do what you want to do. That's called self-determination, right? And there's the power over, power over others to get others to do what you want to do, what you want them to do. Right now, we don't, li- we lack, we don't, li- we don't have either forms. Organized, in a way, we, we have people mass power, we have people power, but it's not organized. That's our job, to organize, to, so we can uh, engage in self-determination and stop other people from doing what they want to do over us. Uh, there's uh, four forms of power. There's force. Force is just that. You have the physical ability to make someone do what you want them to do. Regardless if they want to do it or not, you have the ability to make them do it. The second is coercion. Coercion is when someone thinks you have the force and think you're going to use it. You don't have to use it and you don't have to have it, but if they believe you have it, they're going to do what you want them to do. That's called coercion. Then influence is when someone does what you want them to do because they like you. The white folks like black folk. (laughs) They showed us over 500 years they have no affinity for black people. They do what you want them to do. You can influence someone if they believe you're the expert. Do white folks think blacks are the experts of anything in this country? Nothing that, give Nothing that they give us white white power. And I'm not speaking just saying white white uh, people, but white power. Does white power think that we are the experts at anything in this country? You can also influence someone if they think you are the authority. Like a, a, a parent can influence their child. They ain't got to force them or cuss You can say, son, daughter, you know, I just, I'm, I'm telling you to do this. It's in your best interest to do it, and I'm your father, I'm your mother, and the child would do it. The white folks think we are the authority in anything in this country, anything on the planet. But the whole aspect about influence is they have to have some type of positive attitude or relationship to you. They have to like you. And our so-called political representatives are trying to influence white folks and not understand influence. They ain't gonna never get nothing because white folks ain't gonna ne- white power ain't gonna never like African people because their whole existence is bent on the oppression and suppression and repression of African people. They're not gonna never do anything from the position of influence. And the last form of power is manipulation, is when you get someone to do what you want them to do and they don't know that you want them to do it. When black in Chicago, we see this manipulation at its heightened level with what is called horizontal violence. When you see these young brothers killing one another, they think they, you know, this is what they were born to do, be gangsters. This is what they were born to do, sell narcotics, control this, 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 this territory, et cetera. But if you craft a community in such a way where you pull out all of the legitimate forms of economic expression, you diseducate them, you remove the fathers, you remove everything that allows them to self-actualize in a positive way, you're going to get exactly what you're getting, and they're going to think they're doing it because they chose to do it. That's manipulation. Yeah. Our communities, when you see all these young sisters engaged in um, dancing on the pole or or working in these these sex videos, any type of the sex industry. They think they're doing it because they got these beautiful bodies or whatever, that they're making this choice. That's manipulation. The black woman's body has always been under attack in this country by white folks. That's That's manipulation. But we're thinking that we're doing this out of our own will. And so we don't understand power. And so... For us to, do, to, to remove this illegitimate uh, uh, representation, we have to form power to do so. We have to be able to force them out, coerce them to do what we want to do, or we manipulate them in such a way that they have no other choice. And there's uh, several bases of power. Property is a base of power. Organization is a base of power, because you have to build power from a base. Uh, networks and ethnic solidarity. Next slide. So ballot measures. Now we're going to talk about ballot measures after we talked about power. Ballot measure builds power based on ethnic solidarity using force and influence. We force the issue on the ballot through the, the petition process. Once we get the issue on the ballot, they have, nothing, they, have, they have no other option but to vote on it because we put it there utilizing their process. So we're forcing this issue before the people. The ballot initiative is a mean by which a petition signed by a certain minimum number of people, registered voters, can bring about a public vote on a proposed statute or constitutional amendment. Uh, Twenty-four states uh, allow for ballot initiatives, which are form a direct democracy. Again, America is a representative democracy and a republic. A representative democracy, the people put a representative in place, and the representative act on the power of the people. Direct democracy is when the people vote on every issue. And there's so much happening with the governing of America. People cannot vote on every issue. But in certain cases, the people can vote on a particular issue directly, and the ballot initiative or the referendum is that process. So a particular issue that gets the people's opinion, not through their representative, but through their own particular vote on an issue is what uh, uh, ballot measures allow. So this is direct uh, democracy. So ballot measures can be direct or indirect uh, uh, initiative. Under direct initiative, a resource or a measure is put directly to a vote after being submitted by petition. Under indirect initiative, a measure is first referred to the legislator. legislature. And if they're not able to uh, grapple with it, then it's put before a popular vote. When organized initiative process, a vote is known as a, a vote. Is known as an initiative, ballot measure, or proposition. So you will find all three of those terms used. Ballot measures, are referendums. Referendums provide the people with the means of expressing their opinion on proposed legislation before it becomes operative as law. So there may be some challenging legislation that some legislators may not want to put out there because they don't know how the people will take it. So they will propose that it be put in referendum form and see how the people uh, respond. There are two primary forms of referendum, the legislative and the popular. The legislative referendum again is put, put out by the uh, legislature and the popular referendum is one that the, the people can put on um, the ballot uh, as a result of petition drive. There's advisory referendums like Chicago. Initiatives are binding. Uh, if they voted on, they're binding, they become law, whatever that outcome is. In Chicago, they do not allow for binding initiatives or referendums. Um, They have advisory referendums. But what we found out in Chicago doing our research was that 87% of the initiatives that were put on the ballot won. And 93% of those that won were actually made into law. So the odds were in our favor, if we got it on the ballot, we would win, and if we, get, if we won, it would become law. Historically, over the last 12 years, that's how the process is ran in Chicago. The difference between a referendum uh, allows the people to state their opinion on laws that have been uh, enacted by the legislature, and the initiative allows people to propose their own laws and put it directly to the vote of the people. Next slide. What is the process of utilizing a ballot measure? Uh, you contact whatever city department, it's the board of elections uh, or a state board or a local board of elections uh, to find out the, all, the, all the states and local uh, bodies, election bodies, have rules. Um, generally three, four page document to state the rules on uh, and the process. Uh, you file a proposed petition with the designated state official. Uh, They will review the proposal, and in several states, they'll review the language of the proposal. What your actual question? You prepare a title and the summary of your question, and then you petition circulation to obtain a quiet number of signatures. In Chicago, uh, the number of signatures was determined by how many people voted in the city of Chicago at the last uh, gubernatorial election. And so uh, there were in the city of Chicago, there were a million three hundred thousand people who voted in the last general uh, governor's election, and we needed eight percent of that uh, number to put our, our initiative on the ballot. And so um, we have one hundred and four thousand. I don't think that's correct, though. I have there. I'm, I'm, I don't think that that. Math is correct, but I think, oh that was Cook county, actually, that was Cook county was uh, it was one point three million in cook county in, in Chicago, there's about six hundred thousand voters in the gubernatorial election. Yes, yeah, that's Cook county, and we needed uh fifty four thousand uh, signatures to uh, get our petition on the ballot. So there's a general format, um, a petition sheet, registered voters It had to be registered voters. The circulators information had to be put on the ballot. uh, Those who actually got the signatures and those had to be notarized. Then you uh, submit your your, uh, signatures uh, to qualify for the ballot. Uh, They must be filed timely and they must meet all the requirements, all the requirements to get your uh, question on the ballot. Next slide. This was 10 things that I found that potential ballot initiatives proponents should ask prior to sponsoring the ballot measure. So if you're going to do this, you want to kind of go through these questions. Does your initiative have voter appeal? Thank you. Does your initiative have voter appeal? Well, uh, our initiative was around reparations. We had a lot of voter appeal. Uh, Was it simple and straightforward? Our question was, should corporations have to pay? So it was simple and straightforward. We went into detail a little bit more and I'll read the detail, but that was really the basic title. Should corporations have to pay for their crimes? And people were able to understand that. Does it have a strategic or tactical value? Yes, resources to our community. That's very strategic. Next slide. Can you attract the necessary resources? We, had, we wrote ours out in stages. Our first stage was to get the necessary resources to do our printing, to um, uh, um, have a lawyer look over our ballot questions. So uh, we knew that once we got it on the ballot, there was certain uh, resources we had to develop or to, to gain to get it on the ballot. And then once we got it on the ballot, we knew we were going to have to run it like a political campaign. So we needed more funds after that. So uh, we thought we could get the resources. Uh, we certainly got enough resources to get uh, all of our printing done, and our um, to pay for our notary-, notary, who had to notarize the uh, uh, the petitions petitions, and for uh, uh, office type equipment. Is it cost effective? Will it will it cost relatively little to qualify? This was what um, our sister Inez talked about a little bit when she talked about how some campaigns they pay for signatures a dollar or so forth a signature. We needed 54,000 signatures. We couldn't afford to pay $54,000 to get these signatures. And as you stated, we was trying to get, we knew we'd need twice as many, you know, to uh, qualify. So it was not really a uh, cost-effective situation that we went into. However, with the finances, we thought, and we still believe today, even though we didn't reach our numbers, that cost was really not the, not the determining factor why we didn't reach our numbers. Is, it, is the political climate right? Well, we thought, yes, the political, the political climate is right, as everybody here stated. The political climate is right for self-determination. No question about it. Our people are looking at the idea that we should control our communities in every aspect. So the political climate is definitely right. Next slide. <laughs> Will the ballot language be in your favor? Well, we had opportunity in Chicago to, to craft our own language, so definitely was in our favor. Does it help or hurt other candidates? Uh, it would probably hurt the petty bourgeoisie, but, you know, uh, because they could actually enact this uh, legislation in their own without us having to go through this measure. So it definitely was going to uh, put a negative light on them. Does it help or hurt other ballot initiatives? Uh, we felt that none of the other initiatives were uh, spoke to African people, so we you know, that was not a question. Now are we prepared to win. We are definitely prepared to win because we knew that we would then direct the resources to some of the reparative aspects we need in our community. Next slide. Uh, we can skip this slide. You can have that. Um, there was a study done that shows that you know uh, this this country is in favor of ballot measures because they're frustrated with the government. Uh, some of the key findings in this study was that voters in, in important democratic groups are enthusiastic about ballot measures. Voters are in these uh, demographics see ballot measures as a direct, tangible opportunities to affect change in their state and their community in their own lives. Uh, and there are some other uh, aspects of this study that shows that uh, the people are ready to take uh, this form of, of uh, political action if it's presented in the right way. Next slide. These are some of the questions that you can put on a ballot initiative. This is the one that we actually use uh, for reparations. Uh, point number six in the uh, Black National Black Agenda for Self-Determination is reparations. And so uh, our title was, as I stated, should corporations be required to pay for their crimes? And the basic question was, many scholarly studies and human rights findings assert that African-Americans are still socioeconomically and psychologically hampered by the institutions of enslavement and discrimination should the current slavery disclosure ordinance, which is in Chicago, be amended to mandate the corporations, institution in addition to disclosing their investments and profits from enslavement must also enter into the economic enhancement agreements uh, with the African descended population in the city. And so in most cities they have what's called community benefit agreements. Uh, When corporations want to engage in some type of action in the community, they have to sign a community benefit agreement with the community groups. Well, we threw that out, and we were introducing the whole idea of an economic enhancement package as opposed to a community benefits agreement. And so uh, they didn't have to know what that was. And when we were asking about signing them, you know, the basic question is, should corporations have to pay for their crimes? And the people understood that. And, And we were able to engage them. Uh, one on black women, point number one, as, as the chairman stated in the 919-point agenda for self-determination, is the black woman. Uh, and a particular question that we can ask, uh, should natural contraceptives be offered at clinics in the city? We know that uh, uh, this Deprivera right. has all these severely harmful and generationally harmful effects on black women, uh, but they're not offered anything other than that when they go to these clinics. And so the question, uh, should clinics be required to uh, share natural options of birth control to women once uh, they come in for these, for these for contraceptives? So these are ways that we can be creative and craft questions specifically designed to our 19-point uh, agenda for self-determination. Next slide. This is, uh, uh, a couple of more. A black community controller of police is number three on our platform. Should the city police department be accountable to community residents? Council Authority, that's straight, simple, straightforward, Uh, and it can, that could be the title, and then it can be, the title can be shortened, and then you can put a question underneath it. Uh, Next slide. Uh, Free all political prisoners, Uh, that's that's also uh, question number, uh, uh, platform number four in our total platform. Uh, Should all black prisoners be held in state prison systems fault? to end illegal discrimination in the 1960s, 70s, 80s be put on a fast track to freedom? Simple question. Should they be put on a fast track to freedom? You know, if you can build a a campaign around that, you know, certainly uh, there are are, uh, instances where we can uh, move that forward. Uh, Next slide. Political Action Committee. This is a little bit new that I'm adding to our, our conversation, and it speaks to the whole issue of uh, scalability and capacity. It's one, mean, it's one means by which we engage confrontation with the petty bourgeoisie, with this illegal representation. They're not going to leave without a confrontation, We and we're going to be the ones that have to confront them. Let's just get that clear in our heads that they're they going to have to be confronted. And so this is one way in which we can engage a confrontation. Uh, when I was growing up in the, six, in the 60s, 70s, after the riots in Chicago and elsewhere, there was this urban renewal project going across the country. You remember that, Glenn? Urban renewal. Well, we need an urban removal project, <laughs> an urban replacement project, right? We've got to replace these illegitimate Negroes, petty bourgeoisie that's, in, that's, that's, that's running our people to Iowa yes. and to Nebraska and to uh, Kentucky, yes. you know, and allowing our people to be... Uh, uh, go through a whole other system of trauma once they get there, being surrounded by all this whiteness and, and, and powerlessness in those communities. So we need an urban removal project. So what is a PAC? It's a special organi- organization set up for collecting contributions from a large number of people, aggregating them, and then making contributions to campaigns and organizations. It's generally based on special interests or party interests. Uh, there's two forms connected. Those are connected to a party or a candidate or non-connected uh... that are not connected to a party candidate union or labor or uh... company uh... the main types of non-connected is federal and non-federal if it's federal that means you can only contribute to a federal candidate if it's non federal you can contribute to local and state candidates uh... The requirements must be met as uh... As councilwoman uh, inez barron stated that you know we have to be clear that we are doing everything according to uh the letter when we engage in, in this political process. Uh registration is needed, strict accounting and reporting process. Uh the reporting process is who's donating what and how much and who's receiving what and how much. And that has to be meticulously recorded and be able to be uh uh shared uh to a number of stakeholders. Thank you, sister. Next. So what's the, uh, the process and the pros and cons of creating a PAC? This process is very simple. You come up with a purpose. You name your PAC. You register it, whether it's federal, non-federal. Non- it's going to definitely be non-connected. Uh, you keep after records, and you raise and contribute money. That's pretty simple, <laughs> you know, a process. The pros is you get to set the scope. Our scope is self-determination, black power, right? Uh, it's long-lasting. It can involve many people. You can take upon the big issues, as I stated, and you get to sit at the table at every major decision that's made by legislators. Uh, the cons is there's a lot of rules that you have to follow. It requires hard work, must raise lots of money, easy to burn out. Uh, these are some of the things i found because it's ongoing. You never stop. Uh, so you have to be bringing in new blood, and it's difficult to stay relevant. Well, we don't have a problem with staying relevant, <laughs> because power was something that uh, is always relevant, and the lack of it, and, and uh, what happens to people when they don't have it in any sufficient qualities, quantities, and uh, so we we'll have a problem with staying relevant. Next slide. The brigade. I heard Brother Tashara use the word brigade uh, several times yesterday in, re- in referring to uh, the process of getting the House built here in in, St. Louis. There was a brigade. There were some forces that were put together and this was what they were designed. It was their purpose is to erect a physical space for African people to wage a self-determination battle not only in the city of St. Louis but out of here a national battle as you see by the attendance here today. So uh, the purpose of the Brigade Pack is to fight white supremacy, build power, and legislate for self-determination. That's pretty clear. There hasn't been a fight against white power, white supremacy in Chicago since Harold Washington. Brother um, um, Kabula raised Harold Washington's name up yesterday. And there has not been a serious fight against white power in the political process since that particular time. Uh, all struggles in the city of Chicago by black politicians has been about, around influence, which we already determined that's delusional. You're not going to get power. Uh, trying to base uh, our efforts on trying to influence white power to to rule in our favor. So we uh, uh, have this name we're throwing out there, the People of African Descent Self-Determination Brigade Political Action Committee, also known as the Brigade. Specifically, it's designed to run a group of candidates and remove all the illegitimate representation in our communities for the purpose of building power bases to effectively neutralize the policies of white supremacy and enact legislation in support of the 19-point National Black Self-Determination Agenda. So utilizing the PAC allows us to build power based on property, organization, and ethnic solidarity. Again, those are the bases in which you build power, whereby we can utilize every aspect of power. We can force uh, things down the throats of uh, white power. We can coerce them uh, once we build uh, enough, uh, get enough candidates in. We can coerce these other petty bourgeoisies to act as if they were part of the brigade to keep from being supplanted or removed by the brigade. So we can also use coercion. And we're going to definitely have to try to influence our people, let them see, as our sister Keeley did, that we have their best interests. We are the authorities when it comes to building uh, power and self-determination in our community. And that's simply the definition of uh, the brigade. And I already talked about the, the uh, schools in Englewood. So we have this large community in Englewood where five aldermen have a piece of this community. We want to try to build a pack to go up against all five of them, right? So next slide. So in Chicago, uh, in Illinois, pack can contribute 55000 to a local candidate, Um 10,000 from an individual, 20,000 from a corporation or labor union, to win an automatic election in Chicago. The average cost is about 35 grand, and it garners less than 6,000 votes. Uh, To to, uh, the last elections, there's no automatic candidate got more than 6,000 votes in one. We want to try to build a brigade of $200,000, a fund of $200,000, utilizing the black business community in Chicago. Cook County, and with Chicago rest, is the largest black business base in the country, as far as any county. Now, New York has five counties, or five boroughs, but as a one county, Cook County is the largest black business base in the country. We have utilized this method of going to the black business community in the past to fund certain issues, same as Wilson Institute. We have utilized this this, this process. And we have tons of young millennial black business owners that we can go all we want is two hundred dollars over a two-month period to fund this brigade to replace these illegitimate representatives that we have in our community and so we know how to get the we the money is there for us to build this brigade and it, where it takes thirty five thousand dollars to run a campaign it because we're share, because we're running under an idea and not a particular candidate we're running under removing fighting against white supremacy, which none of these Negroes, all of these Negroes who are in office, have an 85 percent or better voting record with white supremacy. That they have not challenged the mayor. 85 to 90 percent voting record with white supremacy. So it's clear we can run a campaign against white uh, fighting white supremacy. A whole idea: of How do we fight white supremacy? And we're going to put these particular candidates who have a relationship to the people, their sole purpose is to fight white supremacy. And so it won't be like they have 35000 but each one of them would have access to $200,000, right? Because we're running the idea, not to the particular candidate, but we have candidates who can stand the muster up against whatever type of scrutiny there is, that they're clean, that they have the right political line. And so uh, that's something that uh, we can do in other places as well. Next slide. So the keys to effective strategy, uh, we must attack the legitimacy of the representation in our community. We cannot call them political leaders. They're illegitimate for the reasons that we stated. Um, They are not wielding the power of the people, and they're definitely not um, governing according to the will of the people. We must educate clearly that initiatives and referendums empower the people, and that empowerment means self-determination. Empowerment does not mean social justice because we live under social justice. When, when black folks are murdered by the police, that's social justice. For a white community who has an unfavorable position against African people, that's their justice for us. So when you're out here fighting for social justice, you're getting social justice every day. Their social justice, not ours. We have to be clear, we're fighting for power. Forget this whole notion of social justice. Our goal is power. must honestly address the, the, uh, the questions, those ten questions around uh, referendums and initiatives, must understand completely the processes of certification, again, all these rules that you must follow, you must follow them correctly, uh, must control the framing of the issue, again, we're fighting against white supremacy and for power and self-determination, that is our push, uh, must clearly educate that the brigade or any PAC is, is the structural means to replace illegitimate representation. We have to have a structure to replace them. Thank you, Susie. We have to have a structure. We can't say we want them gone or run individual. Yeah, we want to run individual candidates, but we also want to run teams against these people. Have them fighting just more than just one. And if we win one seat, and we're going out to five and we win one seat, we won. And even last day, we said if we don't win none, we still win because we've empowered the people with the understanding of what real power is, and that this, le- this representation is straight up illegitimate, and they have no authority in our communities uh, and uh, uh, we're going to replace them one way or the other. We might have to go macDow way and and, and right. put some herbs in there, <laughs> some poisonous herbs in this soup <laughs> right. Right. by way of Macdalew, but we, before we get to macDowell 's methodology, let's try this methodology. <laughs> uh, So it is a structural means by which we can replace this illegitimate leadership, Uh, not air and put leadership, but representation. We must build an economic base to to run a successful urban removal replacement campaign. It all uh, builds upon the economic base that we're able to, how much money we're able to put together and put together effectively and utilize it strategically and effectively. Must have candidates that have a connection to the community, desire to build power, a commitment to fight against white supremacy, and I hope all the 19-point self-determination agenda is their platform. So that's how we, uh, that's one means in which we uh, vet the particular candidates, but, you know, we're going to have to get deeper than that, but that's on the surface that uh, they have to have a desire to build power and not this whole social justice piece uh, and put together an experienced campaign and election team and we have here at the school, the type of experience that we need to run any successful campaign anywhere in the country. Black power. Black is back. Reparations now.
0: Black is back. Black is back. Black is back. Black
3: is back. Black is back. Black is back. Black is back. Black is back. is back. The rallying call is Black is Back, and all of those people who wanted to be mobilized and do work...
2: Good afternoon and welcome to the state of the local reparations movement panel discussion. We're very happy to be here with you today. Right now we are in a special moment in history where the reparation movement is in full momentum and the local efforts are really playing out in a way that we're seeing national uh, support and even more support for HR 40. So today, we want to hear more and learn from and understand how we might build on the efforts of localities across the nation. Um, today, we have, we have uh, Chicago, Illinois, Evanston, Illinois, the state of California, and Detroit, Michigan that will be represented. But know that there are now over 100 initiatives of local reparations. You can learn more about that at redressnetwork.org, where they have been mapping uh, and documenting the local movement in detail. Thank you for being here. We hope that you leave inspired, but more so in action, doing your part, working with your communities to advance local reparations. If you haven't already, we're hoping that you have taken time to watch The Big Payback. It's a documentary on the movement, the contemporary movement of reparations. It centers on the local movement as well as the incredible leadership of Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee as she leads our nation in advancing federal reparations, HR 40. If you haven't watched it yet, we recommend that you do so and that you begin a discussion in your community and contribute to the work. Thank you for being here.
5: Hello, everyone. Hi, I'm Andre Perry, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and it is. My pleasure to um, to moderate uh, what I think is going to be a delightful discussion around the state of the local reparations movement. Uh, as was noted, the issue of reparations has gained an increase in t- attention, and the movement and in, in the movement has over the last few years. As we know, Congressional Bill HR forty calls for the creation of a U.S. Congressional Commission to just study um, the issue of reparations. However, states like California, Maryland, as well as cities like Evanston and uh, Illinois and Asheville, North Carolina, are examining and passing policies that seek to redress the harms of slavery and anti-Black discrimination. And so what we're going to do is talk about those local efforts in in, in, in context of the national m- movement. And it's my pleasure to, to share the stage with some of uh, some wonderful panelists. I'm going to ask for them to turn on their cameras and, and, um, as I introduce them. As you heard, Robin Rue Simmons um, is the founder and executive director of First Repair, a new organization that informs local reparations efforts nationally. She is the, the former fifth ward alderman for the city of Evanston, Illinois, where she led, in collaboration with others, the passing of the nation's first uh, municipal-funded reparations legislation. Keith Williams is with us. Keith Williams is the chairman of the Michigan Democratic Black Caucus and ran the campaign in Detroit that helped create the reparations task force. Dr. Cheryl uh, Grills, Dr. Grills is a task force member of the Milestone California Reparations Commission, the first statewide commission charged with investigating how black Americans in California have been harmed by slavery and systemic racism. And last but not least, we have Cam Howard. Cam Howard is a Chicago-based businessman, reparations advocate, and founder of Reparations United, a new organization focus on unifying actions within the reparations movement. And I'm actually going to start off the conversation with Cam with just a, a very basic question that I, I hope to lay some context. Um, why local reparations? There's a lot of talk about um, reparations, certainly for slavery and the need for congressional action uh, because of it's the, federal, um, the federal government-backed um, slavery, um, but w- so why local reparations? Why does that matter in the con- on the in the context of of creating a reparations program? So I'm going to turn to Cam to answer
4: that that question first.
3: Thank you, Andre,
4: and thank you for having me on such a distinguished panel of activists in this movement at this particular time and space. So why local reparations? We uh, attempted to theorize um, after the successful reparations a- action in Evanston a- a- and Chicago and Asheville, we began to just kind of lay out, you know, what was the actual purpose of local reparations. And we came across what I think is four primarily reasons that we engage in local reparations. And one is that it propels the federal movement. What we do on a local level historically has always pushed the needle toward federal legislation. And one of the most significant cases, examples of that is the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation uh, uh, law that was passed that desegregated the schools. But that was a local action that started in Topeka, Kansas, a very small local city you know, in, in the state of Kansas. And who would think that a federal legislation would come out of some place as small as Topeka, Kansas? But so we, we've had that, that history. So we, we totally believe that local actions, the more local actions, will even push the federal government to act. And we're seeing that happen as, as we begin to add on cities and states. More congressional uh, representatives signed on to HR 40 to move HR 40. So that's number one. Number two, uh, even if the federal bill is, is commission is established tomorrow, it it'll be two years before that report comes back, and then another year or so before resources are directed. So we're talking three, maybe four years down the line. Local reparations allow us to, to engage resources, target resources at specific injuries, specific harms that our people are facing right now in these localities. We can, you know, focus on one or two or three issues per city, get resources targeted at that, and then begin to the repair. Also, local reparations build proposals on the ground that when federal resources come, they can be scaled up. We have proven models of repair in certain issues, housing, uh, tri- uh, public safety, education, et cetera, whatever these locations are directing their resources at, we can then say, this is what works. This is what's worked in California. This is what worked in Evanston. This is what worked in Detroit, Chicago, Asheville. Let's scale these up on a national level. And finally, local reparations allows us to build structures. So when those federal resources come down, we already have uh, uh, institutions and structures in place to make sure that the, the repair and the resources are being directed in a way that our communities benefit from. And we're not having
3: to, to scramble around at that particular time to try to build those structures.
5: I'm going to ask the same question of, of, of you, Keith. Um, why local reparations? Um, um, why it, and, and again, and, and put that in contrast to the national movement for a congressional action.
3: I always say there's more ways to skin a cat. I don't want to get the animal activists out there going crazy, okay? But I just thought that while it's, you know, on a national level, it's political. you got to go through all those gyrations of United States senators, filibusters, and all this other stuff. And I said, why wait for them to get something going when we can do it locally? And in Detroit, we have slavery. So that is a component of reparations. It goes still back to 1792. And I said, you know, in, in Detroit is now one of the blackest cities in America. And I said, if we can't do it in Detroit, then I don't know where else can you do it. And so I, it was right. We, you know, we had some harm done from a wall that was built on Burnwood to separate black folks from white folks. We had uh, a freeway system that went in and destroyed Black Bottom and destroyed the housing and economic viability of the community. And I said, you know, why can't we do it locally? Because things happen locally. If you go back and Cam put it so put it together so eloquently, you can look down in uh, of the, down in Alabama and those cities in Montgomery, how they led movements. And so it, all the energy is in the cities, not in big government bureaucracy. And if you can get people thinking together and leaning together, you can make something happen. In Detroit, I'm telling you, I didn't have no problem once I got it on the ballot. Everybody want to join in. Okay, so I just think it's better to do it on a local level to get the energy and the political people moving on, on from that stuff, uh, uh, standpoint then once you got those folks come back we can take this movement like the million man march and take it right to the uh to to the federal government and once they get their together then we we have everything in place to build on it and, and make it better for everybody else like i tell people in detroit it's time to rebuild and repair
5: you know robin uh there i'm going to ask a similar question in the same vein the the counter is that talk about local reparations as a distraction um, from the effort to get reparations for slavery. How do you respond to that that, that that critique that it's a distraction, that in order to get reparations for slavery, which is a very, as was mentioned, a very difficult hill to climb, why not focus on, on one bill one effort, and then move to other areas?
2: Well, as you know, or may um, not know, that all of us share the same uh, support and demand for the federal bill for reparations. So we are in no way using this as a replacement or a distraction. It's also important to note that in 2019, when this version of the local reparation movement initiated, um, there were far fewer supporters in the House. Right now there are 218 sponsors in the House, a Senate companion bill, um, and more of an appetite and political will to advance reparations. And so it is important that we are advancing local because there's local harm specific above and beyond federally enforced policy. And Evanston sometimes is looked at as a redlining policy. That's actually federal. Evanston had specific harms that were anti-Black laws, zoning, programs, actions that harmed. And so we have to leave within our purview. Every level of government, every institution that has a history of anti-Blackness should be advancing some form of local reparations and directly hearing from the Congresswoman, Congresswoman Sheila jackson Lee herself,
3: we are hearing her
2: appreciation for these local initiatives, how it is um, in empowering her and her leadership with her colleagues to um, build the case for federal reparations. And so as Pam stated, there is precedent. Most examples of, of radical uh, policy change started with the local initiatives, and there is no difference here with what we're seeing in the reparations movement. But not to be a distraction, it has expanded the conversation and has brought in more partners and allied groups and leaders and advocates at a grassroots level up to a congressional level. And, Fact of the matter is, these local, these communities are uh, constituents of Congress, uh, so they should be being informed. These local initiatives should be a call to action for Congress, and we have not seen it as an distraction. In fact, we have seen it as an asset to the movement.
5: Now, Cheryl, it's commonly said that what happens in California uh, translates to the country eventually. Um, why, again, is local reparations important, or why do you think it is necessary um, in the context of an overall reparations program?
1: Well, thank you for that question. So there needs to be a local accounting of how the national actions and inactions uh, that harmed uh, black people over generations actually occurred and the resulting debt um, that is necessary at the local as well as the federal level. And, and local reparations efforts are not a distraction. They in are an enhancement of what could be happening and needs to be happening at the federal level. Um, essentially what, what I'm talking about is that investigation of reparations at the local level can reveal the pervasiveness and the machination of anti-blackness
2: in various localities.
1: And if, there's, if there is to be transformative change related to the multi-generational anti-black ethos in this country, and the deadly mindset that goes with it, that mindset of white superiority and black inferiority, then local communities, state, counties, and cities need to do their own moment of discovery self-reflection, and subsequent policy and community and personal change strategies. This begins with acknowledging not just the national harms, but how local entities colluded with the national harm, abated it, or exacerbated it.
3: Well, I'm hearing a lot
5: of uh, of good things here. The one that... What I heard overall is that reparations won't come from Washington. It will go to Washington effectively. Um, And also – um, uh, something important here, because I, I think everyone acknowledges that the uh, loss of, of of revenue and wealth will can only be come from a federal effort as well as local repar. I mean, I, I think in totality um, okay. that you need both to really get anywhere close to closing wealth gaps created by. Um, uh, these atrocities, and so we absolutely need a federal federal legislation, but um, what I also heard was local municipalities discriminated, too, based on race, and there's a separate claim to be made, and, and why not? But I want to get into, before I get into the details of these local efforts, I want to know who um, who's mobilizing on the ground. And I'll, and I'll actually start with you, Robin, on this one. I mean, how how did you get involved in this local reparations movement? Where did it begin? Because it's varied between different places on, on how it starts and, and who's represented in the movement.
2: Mm-hmm. So at the time that I came to the conclusion of local reparations, I was an elected official at Alderman City Councilwoman or in my city, and I could have easily have been an advocate and not in my electoral, but it was through years of advocacy and, and activism and my own lived experience as a black woman in community and business as a parent that I saw uh, equity was not enough, that our inclusion and inclusion. Were ceremonial, not doing enough. And so what we're seeing is elected officials. We're seeing grassroots uh, leaders, community groups. We're seeing churches. We're seeing the allied communities, white folks, are advancing local reparations,
3: taking on the
2: responsibility for their role and their ancestors' role in the movement of reparations. And so an example in Amherst, Massachusetts, it was a white woman, uh, now councilwoman, Michelle Miller that initiated the local reparations movement. And then you have examples like Detroit, Michigan, where Keith Williams, in his role role as non-elected, you know, initiated a ballot initiative. And then other communities have a strong legislative leader. Some some communities may have a stakeholder organization. Some cities, the NAACP chapter, is the one that is initiating
3: the local preparation
2: And so it is for everyone to participate: allies, institutions, organizations. And we're not seeing any um, any singular sort of thing or leader. We're seeing variations of this throughout um, the nation and who is leading,
3: and all of us should
5: be leading, and leading in the urgency of now. Keith, yeah. Keith uh, you were mentioned. Uh, how did you get involved? Um, what What was the mechanism in, in which you got involved?
3: Let me tell you this. I was inspired by the beautiful lady, Robert Rusevich. One night I was looking at television. Now I forgot the name of the show. Robert probably remember the show. And she was so eloquent, and she was so poised. I said, I want to, I want to do this in Detroit. See, I dare to difference. I'm going. I'm a. I'm, I like to make rain, man. Okay. I said, I'm going to stir something up in the city of Detroit. So I called Robin right after the show. I didn't think she was going to pick it up, pick up my call up, and she called me right back. And about two weeks later, I had her come to the Michigan Democratic Black Caucus meeting. And from that point on, I pushed it through our system, and I started pushing through the city of Detroit because it was right for us. So how did I get involved? It is because that young lady. And Detroit needed it, too. And, and then also, say Andre, this is not an either or end. It's about how we come together to move an agenda that's going to solve the problems of African-Americans, and that's how I look at it. And then I got the, the wheels turning, and I started thinking about how we were going to do it. First, we don't have a city-run, a city, uh, city manager-run government. I said, I didn't want to get into that political stalemate. So I said, I was going to do a ballot in this center. I was going to take it to the people. And what I did, I started polling like white folks do. I started polling, and the and the amazing results were coming back White folks, black folks are all on board. And I said, this is going to be, it's going to be take some work and take some money. But at the end of the day, Robert Williams- Simmons inspired me, and Detroit was right for this new, uh, new way of thinking to bring economic, do- uh, economic development and create a new housing market. I even started thinking about a reparation land bank. All uncovered land should, in Detroit should go to a reparation land bank, and it's going to happen because we all got together, and I'm a bull in a china shop. Uh,
5: doc, uh, Dr. Grills, um, you know, California is unique. You have the, a governor who's been pretty vocal about reparations on this, on this issue. Um, how did you get involved in the issue? And can you just talk a little bit about the political uh, systems and groups and organizations that – are working on this issue?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, California always tries to be the trailblazer. But what I'm hoping our most recent interim report um, will reveal is that California was a trailblazer in its own right around anti-Blackness and in some ways surpassed the South in some of the heinous things that were done to Black folks. Um, The, you know, reparations... Uh, efforts here in California were really kind of sparked by local activists in the state and community-based organizations like CJEC and NASDAQ and a host of others that worked, um, you know, in concert with folks uh, in the legislature that were primed and ready to move on these issues, folks like um, Shirley Weber and Assemblyman John Sawyer and Senator Bradford. How I got involved was um, actually, you know, I was working in my lane. I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I'm a mental health professional. But it became very clear many years ago, kind of watching the work of NCOBRA and the Institute of the Black World and the Black Family Summit convenings that I would go to as a representative of the Association of Black Psychologists, that these discussions that have been happening over generations around reparations needed to make sure that reparations included attention to our well-being and our mental health. And so when that California task force was being assembled, um, I was asked if I would be interested in being considered to be on the task force. And I said, here's the opportunity um, to make sure that we see reparations as something that includes our mental health, our physical health, our community health. Um, and um, the rest is history. Now, you know, our task force is pretty diverse in thought, you know, and um, uh, perspective. Um, we are a nine-member um, task force, um, Some five of us um, appointed by the governor and then others appointed by um, the Senate um, secretary, I mean, the secretary, and, et cetera. Um, but it is really something that I'm glad to say now we have a lot more community-based organizations who didn't see reparations as central to their social justice work. Have now, are, are, I literally was at a, a meeting, a convening with over hundred people just last week on Thursday. And these community-based organizations are taking ownership of reparations and see the direct connection between the reparations efforts in California and nationally and their social justice work in their local communities.
5: You know, Cam, Cheryl mentioned Institute of the Black World and COBRA, other. Um, what are some of the local organizations that people can attach themselves to? Is there um, uh, some organizations people can go to to learn more, to, to get engaged in the movement? How does one engage in this movement?
4: So uh, yeah, uh, Perry, there are, you know, First Repair, I have to direct people to First Repair. You know, First Repair is doing a lot of work around assembling um, leaders, legislators, activists, scholars uh, who are looking to push this issue forward, how they can do it in an organized fashion, get them some guidelines, kind of template, if you will. But, you know, there are quite a few uh, re- reparation organizations that have a national um, uh, lens that are operating locally, of course, and COBRA is one of those organizations. Uh, organizations I just started, Reparations United. We're looking at how we can unify actions around reparations, specific targeted actions for repair, uh, unified among cities that have the same pressing issue. Uh, they can get in touch with us at reparationsunited.org, uh, firstrepair at firstrepair.org, and COBRA and COBRAonline.org. Um, and then, as Robin said, you know, there's this coalition that's being built organically in cities. You know, uh, there's NARC, of course, who are certifying uh, local reparations efforts, definitely want to get in touch with NARC, um, who can come in and, you know, lead the, the, the process, uh, help you uh, lead the process. No one is coming in to lead, but just, just demonstrate how you can, on the ground in your city, determine uh, how to best push forward a local reparations effort. And I just want to go back to one of your, your previous questions, and Cheryl touched on it, Dr. Griff touched on it, when she talked about the heinous nature of uh, actions in the state of California, and California was not a slave state. But we know in the South, after enslavement, after Reconstruction ended, there was slavery by another name. In some of these Southern states, convict leasing was the major economic driver in these states. For instance, the state of Alabama, 80 plus percent of the entire state budget was based on convict leasing. These states, these cities have culpability in the current lived harm that we're experiencing today. And so we don't leave, in, when I was with and Cobra did a lot on actually defining who were the uh, targets of our uh, reparative initiatives. We don't leave anyone out. We don't leave the federal government out. We don't leave the state government out. We don't leave local uh, communities out nor do we leave out corporations and institutions and even wealthy foundations that all had a, had a hand in the lived injury that we're experiencing on the local level, in our homes, in our communities on a daily basis.
5: Yeah, I'm glad to uh, you brought up the point as, as Juneteenth approaches, um, we have to be mindful that there's been harms that have been inflicted upon African-American um, since Reconstruction and, and are still uh, are being injured in, in many ways. So I want to actually get into the nature of some of these local programs r- right now. Um, um, Robin, a lot of folks go to you because you were the, the first um, municipal-funded reparations program. So can you provide a summary of what happened um, in Evanston and where you are today?
2: Absolutely. In 2019, our city went through a public process where we um, heard from stakeholders. We had public meetings to hear from our um, black residents and community on what forms of reparations we would want to prioritize. And through that process of listening, our uh, Equity and Empowerment Commission crafted a recommendation to the city council that we advance reparations. There was a unanimous support actually that we as a city council accepted that challenge from the equity empowerment commission. We then went into a reparations committee where the work began, where we took the information from the community and began to craft priorities based on consensus of the feedback that we had and we have come up with our uh, first priority. I can state that our initial fund is a $10 million commitment from cannabis sales tax revenue, and we are moving forward with our first initiative, just the first. I know there's a lot of bad information out there being centered around housing, and that is important. It is specific and in direct correlation to the harm in Evanston, which was anti-Black zoning laws and housing policies. And so we have our initial remedy, which is a $25,000 direct benefit to those that have been harmed through 1919 and 1969, and their direct descendants um, through housing initiatives in Evanston. And I'll say that we have begun dispersing. We have uh, selected our initial recipients, and they have been dispersed, and we've been hearing incredible feedback from them, not just in how it established new wealth for their families, but also how they feel the city has made an effort to begin the process of repair, how they're feeling restored, working towards being made whole, and feeling a better sense of place in Evanston.
5: So a lot of the critics will say uh, that the amount awarded, um, and and can you provide those amounts, um, really pale a comparison to the injury. Um, Can you respond to that criticism?
2: absolutely. That that critique is a waste of time. It's a false debate. We all agree that it alone is not enough. This initial $25,000 benefit is not a settlement. We are in process. Uh, We have allocated only the first 4% of our funds. We know we have more work to do in Evanston. We also have other accomplices in Evanston. And so while we have the municipal role, we also have our Healthcare system in our school districts and our our university in town, which is Northwestern University. So the committee does not disagree that it is it is not enough. We are acknowledging as a first step, a first tangible step that has moved beyond ceremony and apology. And I couldn't be uh, more proud of those doing the work in Evanston for taking that step and not being paralyzed in criticism. And it's not enough but understanding it is a complex process and one that we are committed to moving forward.
3: Keith, what's going on in Detroit? So after the November election, we got more votes than the mayor of the city of Detroit. We got 80% of the vote. And so after that, we got a, we got a work group going. And so then we did a survey about two months ago to, to try to configure this task force. So where are we at now? It's got voted out of committee uh, last week and they postpone the vote until next Tuesday, we'll accomplish, we'll put the task force together, and so we can start making recommendations on economic development and housing. So I'm so elated about this. You know, uh, you know Detroit is different, okay? We have been through a lot of stuff, you know, from emergency managers to uh, bankruptcy and all this other stuff. But when it comes down to, you know, this reparation movement, when they're unified, they want to see something happen. So we are right in the throes of it, and it's going to come to fruition uh, next week of the task force, and hopefully I will be on that, uh, that task force. I know I will.
5: Um, Cheryl, there's a lot going on in California. Can you name some of the initiatives and describe what's happening in the state of them?
1: Okay. So in California, our task force has a two-year term, and we were um, required to submit a report at the midway point, which we did on June 1st, an interim report. It's a 500-page report, 13 chapters, that lays out the harms from 1619 to the present in a number of different areas, whether that's just understanding what enslavement period was actually like, uh, looking at racial terror, uh, the wealth gap, housing issues, political disenfranchisement, uh, education issues, environmental racism. I mean, the, it's an extensive review. From there, our next point of order is to look at and examine the forms of reparations. We have a team of economists working with us, and they will be calculating um, different and modeling different forms of reparations. I think probably the most um, notable um, decision that the task force has made was a highly contested, very close vote, 5-4, in favor of lineage-based approaches to reparations in terms of who qualifies. Um, But the the hard work... Explain
5: explain that.
1: Explain... The lineage approach. Okay. So... The decision by five members of the task force um, was that um, who would qualify for reparations must be direct descendants of enslavement and that people would have to demonstrate um, uh, that they are a direct descendant in order to qualify for whatever form of reparation is going to um, be um, uh, deemed or decided upon and recommended by the task force. A number of us really have concerns with that approach for a host of reasons, uh, beginning with you know we're, you're requiring the harms to once again prove themselves, um, and that this notion of being able to demonstrate lineage is in fact not as easy as people um, have suggested. Then it's also a divisive approach because the the assembly bill explicitly stated, regardless of the intent of the authors of the bill, the bill states that we are to look at both the harms of enslavement and the ongoing legacy of enslavement in terms of post-enslavement, post during Jim Crow and Reconstruction, post all of that, uh, harms against Black people. Well, at the end of the day, when those harms that are more contemporary, you know, post-enslavement have uh, occurred, the... the, um, victims are not questioned. Are you a direct descendant? Oh, okay, I'm going to harm you. Oh, you're an immigrant from Nigeria. I'm going to give you a pass. That doesn't happen. If you're black, you're black. And um, I think as you said, Cam, I'm going a, to mess it up. But if you're harmed in America, you are due reparations in America, from America. So, you know, that's the kind of a, in a nutshell where we're at with.
5: That I just issue. want to stay on this point because it is a complicated issue about who qualified for reparations, I, but I want to, I'm going to go to cam on this uh, because if, if there is specificity for the claim, say, if you are um, making a claim for reparations because of redlining, it's people who lived in a specific geographic area. So if you are making a claim for slavery, it's people who, were descendants of the enslaved. So I I just want to get clear on what are your thoughts around um, who should qualify for what reparation?
3: You're absolutely right, uh, Perry, Andre, um, Dr. Perry, I should say. Uh, Our position is
4: everyone who's been harmed by a crime has the right to make the claim. Now, every specific crime didn't affect everybody. And so the particular claim that you can make can only be based on the crime that was committed against you. So someone coming, an immigrant, can't make a claim for enslavement, as Dr. Grill stated. But if they came here doing Jim Crow segregation, they can definitely make a claim for the crime of redlining, the crime of uh, educational discrimination the crime of disinvestment from their community or lack of investment. Or even some of our brothers and sisters from the Caribbean came here and served in the military during the Jim Crow period. They didn't even get the GI Bill. So it depends on, we say everyone African, everyone black, of African, or African who came to America and, and had some form of racial anti-black action, crime, harm committed against them, can make a claim against this country. But the specificity on the repair side comes only to those who've been injured in a specific way. And so
3: that removes the immigrant, if you will, from making any claim against what happened during the period of enslavement. But
4: it does not remove them from making claims that happened during the period at the time that they came, even if they came yesterday and were – victims of a police terror as our brother in the Congo was and his family. That's a, that's a repair to claim that they can make based on the crime that was committed or the harm that was committed against them in this country by the American... Um, but, I just, but
5: I also want to be clear that many immigrants are due reparations from other countries, correct? That's exactly
4: right. But we're talking about specific right. harms that was yeah. done to them in this country. So right. yeah. they want to be repaired from harms done to if, if our brothers in the Caribbean want to be prepared for, for enslavement harms, they would have to make that claim in the country in which they, their ancestors were enslaved. And so we're clear that for specific crimes committed, that determines the eligibility class, right? However, we cannot say that because you weren't here, you didn't have an ancestor here in enslavement, you can't make a claim even though a crime was committed against you. That, that's just non just. It's not, you know, uh, it's not even spiritual. It's not even religious. If we claim we're a Christian nation and we're Christian people. It's not even Christian to say that you can't make a claim on someone who's committed a crime against you. So that, that's really the big issue that we see a distinction. And, and, Andre, we're only talking about probably 10% of Black folks in this country. Right. The, the vast majority of us, about 90%, you know, are here because of our ancestors were enslaved in this country.
5: Now, I'm going to turn to some of the questions here in the, um, that I'm receiving. I'm going to first start off with a question to Keith, and I just want to remind people that we are being recorded. Um, Keith, what would you say to the critics who say that local reparations in a majority black place doesn't make sense, since it may be funded by black folks' tax dollars?
3: Yeah, we heard that, you know, in Detroit – we fund everybody else's uh, operation with our tax dollars. So why not fund black folks' tax, uh, uh, economic development, housing? I think that's, uh, that's a red herring. Uh, the bottom line is that we have a white mayor. We voted for a white mayor to lead our city the last, last three terms, and he's got the purse string. He's taking care of his folks, and I'm not saying that it's supposed to help all the folks in City Detroit, but why not? we got to start somewhere repairing the harm, okay? And so, to me, it's, it's, it's nonsensical. I just think now we got to repair the harm that was caused by those folks who had the city and, and currently who has, and harm is still being caused. Right now, the, uh, Andre, they, tap, they overassessed the property taxes to $600 million, and, and, and the city don't want to pay those folks back. They would. We, we go and do what we're supposed to do. Reparations. We can get that six hundred million dollars back, so we can pay our people back. I just, I, I just want you to repeat that because that's a clear. Like,
5: I mean, that's very recent, and it's clear the amount. Can you just talk a little bit
3: about that situation? The most egregious thing was forces in the bankruptcy when we had a water department could take care of the bankruptcy. The second thing is they overassess people's houses to the tune of $600 million. And the mayor says he's not going to pay it back. Okay. And so that is one of the most egregious things that's happening currently. It ain't got it has nothing to do with the thirties and the forties. It happened in the, in the, in 2008 or 2010. And that is egregious. So what we try to do is fight so you can get your money back and it's, and, and, and the mayors controlling the infrastructure of, 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 the, uh, of the money that, that was, was called out to you. So I don't get that. It's crazy. Yeah. And Robin, I, I just want to
5: get to this issue of funding, because there are some questions around funding. How should many of these initiatives be funded in in an ideal, um, in an ideal way in your mind?
2: Uh, through various tax revenues, and in Evanston, as you know, we started with uh, cannabis sales taxes It actually um, was a second or even third recommendation because of the harm. I think that harm report, that study, like California has done and other cities, is important, and that really informs eligibility. It informs how you fund it. It informs the remedy, and uh, cannabis was appropriate. Also, graduated real estate transfer tax. Or transfer sales tax um, is another way to fund it as well. I believe Asheville used the sell of public property um, to fund it. But there are many ways. There should also be some component of philanthropy or ally giving for reparations. And so we've seen that begin to happen in Evanston under the organization of our faith community, and those contributions are going to an independent body of Black residents, the Rep- Rep- Reparation Stakeholder Authority of Evanston, that will deliver repair that is coming in through uh, through philanthropy. So I don't think there's really any one specific way, but from a municipal perspective, some version of uh, tax revenue or general um, or, or or general uh, budget should fund reparations.
5: Yeah, because um, is, again, this goes back to a little bit of what um, Cam was saying. Governments are paying. I mean, uh, Keith was saying governments are paying reparations, so it's, it's going to be generally tax or tax revenue that that gets to those things. So I want to get to California a little bit because a lot of this occurred because there was a surplus, correct? In, in this or, or, or no? I don't know
1: that I would say it occurred. Okay. Okay. but surplus does does make the whole idea a little bit more tenable right, right. <laughs> california does have some money <laughs>
5: right 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 but it was um folks really making the point that it, th- this is this is a moral and an economic issue that we redress these issues um at the state level
1: mm-hmm.
5: yeah so i Uh, And and what was that argument? How did that argument play out?
1: Well, I think the way it played out is that there was enough pressure and input from community groups to help shape some legislative language that was then um, shepherded by, you know, some members of the legislature, both at the Assembly and the Senate level. Um, And a governor who, you know, was... uh, I don't think he was leading, he was definitely not leading the charge, but he, it got to a point where it would have been problematic for him to go up against the charge, and so then things kind of moved forward, and we are now here with this uh, assembly bill that not only created a task force, I think the other thing that's important here that for other um, municipalities or cities, cities and counties to be aware of is that Our task force has been given resources to do what we need to do, and we've been given subpoena power uh, to do what we need to do. And so it does help, does make a difference that have, you know, like we have a team of lawyers and researchers um, from the Department of Justice that is working hand-in-hand with us. That has made our ability to be effective and to uh, discern and, and, and get information out there to the public um, more effective.
5: Now, I'm to, we only have a few more minutes um, before we close out, um, but I just wanted to to stay on this point about um, now payments. Um, uh, what should reparations look like? What are the various things that are going on in your uh, local uh, efforts? Uh, we heard some from Robin already, but can you just speak to this issue of what do reparations look like um, for you?
1: Well, in California, for the California Reparations Task Force, that is one of the topics that's coming up for us. That's going to be a difficult conversation um, because there are certain mindsets that say cash is the, only, is the only form of reparations that makes sense and is, that is, is viable, that is appropriate. There are many others who say reparations should not be limited to cash payment. It's not against cash payment. But if we really want to create change, if we want to really address the multi generational mindset and policies and practices that are anti-Black and this state and in this country, cash is not going to cut it. And in fact, what we're hearing in some of the listening sessions across California that the task force is is, uh, supporting uh, is that the community wants to see reparations, uh, forms of reparations that have an impact into perpetuity, that is going to, you know, make the way better for subsequent generations, not just put some dollars in somebody's pocket, that's likely going to recycle right back to the very companies and institutions that have, you know, um, conspired
2: against us. Robin? Thank you for that. And now, having been physically in dozens of cities, having some version of what Dr. Grills is explaining these town hall meetings. We're not hearing cash. We're hearing a long list of portfolio of remedies from access to education and housing and business and information and uh, and, and holidays and black history museums and so on, policy change and uh, a long list. And it's very rarely centered on cash, although there is a strong movement for cash as reparations. And so we really embrace uh, full repair, five components, including Satisfaction and the Juneteenth holiday falling under a version of uh, reparations as an appropriate um, acknowledgement and honoring in that holiday. Uh, and that's what we're seeing really consistently everywhere we go.
5: Keith, what, what, what do you think about
3: uh, what reparations should look like? You know, reparations, Ray, in his last, um, when he was on his deathbed, he was saying that it should go to education and economic development and think about this, the city 20 35 percent but we have uh, white folks live in our community. The, from the economic development standpoint, they will benefit from it too, okay? The economic, you know what economic does for a community? It can help the tax base. It can lower the crime rates. It helps with education. So I think we're not talking about, some folk want cash, but a lot of folks want uh, to solve the problem of $600 million dollars um the uh, the housing because we knew we need fresh housing in the city of detroit but more importantly people want to create another black bottom because they remember they ran a freeway system through a, a black bottom now they want to destroy that and by 2027 they want to recreate uh black bottom and, and and the economics that came out of black bottom so from an economic standpoint housing and education standpoint that's what they're talking about in detroit and, and, Cam, in general, what are you hearing across the
5: country? What What are people asking for, what, demanding? Um, what's at stake here? Oh, you're on mute.
4: Yeah, it's just what everyone else has stated. You know, we're hearing a wide variety of, of things that come under restitution. Um, from my history with COVID, we've always stayed focused on the repair uh, not so much the crime, which, you know, the compensation is for the crime of stolen labor and all that. We we also, you know, are totally behind compensation, but we've always focused on the injuries. And we claim that there was five predominant injury areas, education, you know, from preschool all the way up to postgraduate, uh, especially investment in, in historically black institutions. Um, in cities like Chicago, we have a less than 13 percent high school grad reading level reading uh, uh, uh but that our students are graduating at reading level less than 13 percent 87 percent failure to, to educate our children in Chicago so education is an injury area economic development you know closing the wealth gap but also business grants and business investments and
3: loans in our community in then various black communities with with that I have a zip code that is Red line still, you know, they'll invest in
4: those communities for business development, but the person who was getting the loan has a zip code that lives outside of that community. It's still discrimination. And so uh, economic development is is one area. And there's a host of things that can be done in in, in the area of economic development. Even, you know, uh, uh, more employment for uh, our youth has to be a part of uh, reparations because we know that when young people are, are employed, they build families, and they build strong families, and so that's part of the repair. A, a, a third injury area is criminal justice. We have to engage this criminal justice system in a way that brings brothers and sisters mm-hmm. back into our society as healthy individuals, and, and and stop them from getting into these into these institutions. Right. And so, criminal justice is is another area. Our people, our culture, you know, the, the biggest issue that we've had in this country for generations, for centuries, is one around our identity. Who are we as a people? You know, and why is there so much disunity among African people? One of the things that uh, happened with the Jewish reparations is that they focused a third of their reparations on what they call community cohesion. They were trying to build a nation out of Jews that were scattered all over Europe, had different languages, uh, you know, they shared the faith, but they had to build unity in order to build the nation. And so this whole identity about our peoplehood, our identity, is another injury area. And then finally, uh, the issue that is Dr. Shro talked about is health—not just mental health, but physical health. We have to—we're, we're, you know, suffering from the largest amount of illness uh, in this country's history as a, as, a, as a group, subgroup in this country. And so the health injury area, and there's a whole lot of things around health uh, that has to be addressed. So we see this as a broad, as Dr. Cheryl stated in, in the report that came back from California, there's a broad range of initiatives that have to be created. We have to look at, focus on the injuries, injuries. that has resulted from these centuries of crimes, and then we target the resources at all of those injuries, and it's going to be multigenerational.
5: Well, man, I want to thank everyone for this wonderful panel. This has been my uh, uh i'm uh, i'm my time is up in terms of my contribution to the panel um there's a, been a lot of great things stated here and there's going to be a lively debate i'm sure that ensues thereafter but one of the things that i find is absolutely valuable about these conversations about local reparations is that uh, there's a culture of repair that is occurring that that will um, only advance um, any direct uh, policy Um, that occurred at the national or the local level, that on-the-ground efforts that you are hearing about today are really changing the culture of this country. We created a culture of exclusivity that led to the subjugation of um, African people, Um, and we need to create a culture of repair, and I really do believe that occurred at the grassroots level. And so it's my um honor to to um to or thank you for this opportunity to present to you today, but I'm going to pass it off uh to Robin, who will have some closing um remarks.
2: Thank you, andre. Thank you for making this time and just closing quickly um, the movement includes Upcoming actions, like tomorrow, the city of Boston will vote on a slavery and acknowledgement uh, resolution. Next week, the city of Detroit, cities like Kansas City and um, Waukegan, Illinois, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, are beginning to mobilize. The U.S. Conference of Mayors has signed a resolution. The Jewish uh, reform movement has voted for reparations. The Catholic Order pledged $100 million. We all heard about Harvard. Just saying this to say that the movement is in momentum, but we all stand in uh, solidarity to push for federal reparations in HR 40. So if you could please uh, just look at our Facebook page, firstrepair.org, or look at all of our or social media pages, and you can see where there is a call to action for HR 40. We're calling for an executive order. And you can also learn more about what's happening in the movement through the documentary, The Big Payback. It is available and streaming uh, live right now. It's streaming at the uh, Tribeca Film And you can also go to FirstRepair.org to learn more about how you might stream that documentary. But as stated, there is an army of leaders and, and, and grassroots activists that are behind you if you're looking to advance in your own city, NARP at reparationscom.org and in Cobra. Uh, the African American Redress Network, a long growing list of organizations, um, many being supported by Liberation Ventures, who is one of our sponsors for today. Uh, there are grassroots efforts that have an opportunity for funding so that you might mobilize and advance reparations. Uh, for your community so thank you for being here and we hope that you do do your part no matter if you're an ally an activist a legislator an academic a business person we are asking you to join us in the movement for reparations thank you